morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good. There are certain things in scripture that so overwhelm me sometimes. I just feel, you know, they are too high. I can't attain to them. And, and just that, that God allows me to open his word, it's overwhelming sometimes. So give me a minute. <laughs> oh, the grace of God is such a, such a precious thing. Hey. Okay. So, retreat coming up. I hope you'll be able to take me seriously after you come to this because fools for Christ on parade. <clears throat> Get your tickets today. Come see. Oh, me. Well, once upon a time, y'all, I was talking with a friend. She had two young boys at the time. They were four and two years old. And she was absolutely amazed and could not figure out where it was coming from that the four-year-old was beginning to take out all of his frustrations on his two-year-old brother. And he would say things like to him, this is not your family. This is not your mommy and your daddy. They're my mommy and daddy. You are not family. And she was like, where in the world does this come from? Especially because she and her husband had made a concerted effort never to speak harsh words to one another. And especially in front of these precious little boys. Where in the world would they learn it? And she just couldn't figure that out. And I said, I'll tell you exactly where they learned it. It's called the sin nature, and they're born with it. Nobody has to teach them how to behave like that to each other. We, all of us, are born from the moment of conception. We are born in that condition, and we need a Savior. And God, in his grace, sent his only begotten beloved son to be that savior for us and to be the remedy for our sin. And last week we were looking at the altar of sacrifice. And that's where we see so vividly what Jesus Christ came and did for us. But before we look at it a little more in depth, I want to take a moment to, in our mind's eye, stand in the courtyard of the tabernacle. If we are inside the tabernacle, in that courtyard, and look around, you will notice that there are linen curtains creating the perimeter of the courtyard area. And uh, the Lord loves a diligent student. He's issued an open invitation, come, let us reason together. And so I love to find out what all these details mean. And that's one of the reasons I created for you the materials list. This was handed out a couple of weeks ago, I believe. Um, and if you want to take advantage of those three ring binders someone has generously provided, you'll have a place to put all these handouts. But each one of these materials that are used in the tabernacle, uh, sort of a mini Bible study for each of the various materials. But in our time together, we won't be able to go in depth and talk about everything. I just wanted you to have some resource material should the Lord nudge you in a certain direction and you want to undertake some study of your own. But today, I just want to touch a little bit on one thing that we won't see in the pieces of furniture. So, as I said, you're in this courtyard, linen curtains all around. And they are 
uh, suspended by poles to create the courtyard area. Well, the poles are not planted in the ground. Remember, this is a portable place of worship. So as the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night would lift and move, they had to break down the tabernacle, pack it all up, and move in obedience to the Lord. And then as soon as they uh, got to where the new destination was, they would reassemble everything, and it would be ready to go. Well, the uh, poles then, God instructed Moses to create these great blocks he called them sockets. So in the courtyard area, these sockets were made of bronze. The predominant metal out there in the courtyard was bronze. It was sturdier stuff, of course, than gold. And it was subject to weather and other elements. And so God wanted them to be sturdy enough to maintain over the course of 40 years wandering and beyond. So they would take these great sockets of bronze and insert the poles into them. And then you would be able to um, hang the curtains from those poles to create the perimeter. I mentioned before that bronze is symbolic in scripture of judgment. Linen is symbolic of righteousness. So as you stand in the courtyard in your mind's eye and you look around, you could say that the entire courtyard rested on a righteous judgment of sin. But that was not the case for the tabernacle proper. The tent of the tabernacle was made by, with various layers of differing materials. And there were walls that were made of acacia wood, completely overlaid with gold. And they also rested in sockets. But the sockets for the tabernacle proper were not bronze, they were silver. And it's the silver that I want to spend a little bit of time on today. Silver in the Levitical mind is symbolic of redemption. And I will tell you why here in just a few moments. Uh, God's intention from the very beginning was that the firstborn son of every family in the entire Hebrew nation, the firstborn son would go into the ministry and become a priest. That was his original intention. But the whole golden calf debacle ruined that and disqualified every one of the tribes but one. In response to Moses' call, the Levites rose up to help clean up the mess. But from that moment on, every firstborn from all the other tribes now still belongs to God, and every single one of them has to be bought back. And so the coin of redemption is a silver coin. So we're going to take a look here in Scripture, see how God has talked about this. He gave these instructions to Moses even before Pharaoh's army was destroyed in the Dead Sea. Uh, excuse me, the, the Red Sea. So Exodus chapter 13 is where we're going to head. And for your notes, it'll be uh, verses 1 through 15 cover this. But we're going to hop around in there, not reading the entire section. But for your notes, Exodus 13, 1 through 15. God is speaking to Moses here, and he gives him these instructions. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 2, sanctify, and that just means set apart, set apart to me as a holy thing. Sanctification is holy, setting apart. Sanctify to me every firstborn 
the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me, says the Lord. Now jump to verse 12. He says, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. Now he's going to give an interesting addendum here in verse 13. But the first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Now donkeys were considered unclean animals. The Hebrews could have them to use as beast of burdens and that type of thing. But you cannot bring to the tabernacle any unclean thing as an offering to the Lord. But the firstborn of every womb still belonged to the Lord. So in order to keep that donkey and use it, you had to buy it back. And that's what he continues to say here. If you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So there is this redemption procedure that God has put in place. Why? Why this interesting procedure. Well, he answers that for us in verse 14. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him. See, the idea behind all these procedures, they were teaching tools. God wanted every father to be able to teach his children about the mighty outstretched hand of God on their behalf. He is mighty to save. He is the God of provision and power and righteousness. And God wanted all of these interesting and sometimes bizarre procedures to lead directly to him. He has planted that, amen. He has planted that curiosity in the heart of a child, a sense of awe and wonder. And so when these procedures would prompt that, then God wanted their, the parents to have an answer ready for the children. And he continues on here. The father is speaking. When your son asks you, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I, says the father, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So he gives this procedure and we learn by it that the firstborn males belong to the Lord. And to redeem a child, we find out from the book of Numbers, required a silver coin. So for your notes, Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, God reiterates the, uh, the individuals and the animals that are meant to be redeemed. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say... And as to their redemption price, from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver. So in the Hebrew mind, you see, redemption and silver are inextricably linked. These two things are one in the Hebrew mind. And then came Jesus Christ. And Peter gives us insight, further insight, this side of the cross, what this model looks like. First Peter chapter 1 
verses 18 and 19. He writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, that innate sin nature that we're all born with, you have to be redeemed from that. But it didn't take the blood of bulls and goats or any other thing. Peter tells us, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. So to that model, redemption and silver are the same thing. But the blood of Christ makes silver, in our understanding, a picture of redemption through the blood of Christ. And if you looked at that tabernacle proper and saw that those golden walls with their many coverings sat in sockets of silver, you would know that the whole of your relationship with God and your service of worship to him, all of it rests in sockets of silver. It rests on the blood of Christ for your redemption. And if you do not come through the one and only door into the courtyard, and if you do not stand at the altar of sacrifice, you cannot go any further at all. There is no relationship with God. And you are not at rest. But Jesus Christ is our rest. He is all that is pictured in both the courtyard and in the tabernacle itself. Outside in the courtyard, all we see is judgment for sin. But once you enter into the tabernacle, you are at rest and at peace with God forever. And he will never, no never, leave you or forsake you. What a beautiful thing. Last week, when we began to look at the tabernacle furniture, we stopped in that courtyard doorway and saw that great altar of sacrifice there. And there's an interesting Hebrew phrase that God uses. In fact, I think he uses it in 21 times in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and even once in Ezekiel. He calls what takes place here at the altar of sacrifice a savor of rest. And Jesus is our rest. And many different feasts and offerings and sacrifices were presented to the Lord over the history of the Hebrew people right there at the altar of sacrifice. But of all of those things that took place, Passover especially prefigured what Jesus Christ would come and do. It was first observed in Egypt, and you can read about it in Exodus 11 and 12. But we are going to fast forward to the day of Christ's crucifixion. And we see that story unfolds and tells us that we are now between the evenings on Passover day. And if there were any men standing around the foot of the cross on that day, at that time, that exact time, they all would have had to go home because they had to be home for the beginning of Passover. And Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, would have been at the temple preparing to offer the Passover lamb. And he would have to ask certain questions about the sacrificial lamb. He would say, is it a male lamb? Is it the firstborn of the flock? Has it ever had any broken bones? Any spots or blemishes? A spot is something you're born with. A blemish is something you acquire along the way. If the wrong answer was given to any of those questions, that lamb would be disqualified. And if it was qualified, then the high priest would take a knife 
and sacrifice that lamb at the exact moment that Caiaphas slaughtered the lamb, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, cried, it is finished. The very same moment. Knowing, Peter said, that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of the lamb. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us forever proving his great love for us, the forgiveness of our sins. It overwhelms me. Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is our Passover. Every detail is in some way pointing to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. Remember from last week, we talked about the altar of sacrifice was built of acacia wood, and it was completely completely covered in bronze. That's a picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ, completely covered in judgment for my sin. He is both the altar and the sacrifice, and he took on human flesh to tabernacle among us so that he could pay the price, become my sin for me, and allow himself to be slaughtered on that cruel cross. And in the act of doing that, he has now drawn me near to the Father. We can cry, Abba, Father. We have full and complete access to the very throne room of the universe. We are called by the Father, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. He calls me holy. It's a mystery to me. Holy, blameless, and beloved because of what his Son has done, And because I, one day, many, many decades ago now, recognized that I was a wretched sinner and I needed a savior. And Jesus Christ was right there watching, listening, waiting for me to say, please be my savior and forgive me. But he didn't do that just for me only. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, for as many as received him... To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He himself, Jesus Christ himself, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. His forgiveness is available to anyone and everyone who will ask. The only people that are going to go to hell are those people who refuse to ask. It's been paid for. The work is done. And we, all of us, are going to live for eternity. We get to decide where we spend it. We can spend eternity with the Father in glory or be separated from him forever and live in eternal torment. The decision is mine, but the price has been paid. The gift is sitting there ready, waiting to be accepted. If you remember also one of the details about the altar of sacrifice, it was a perfect square. Four corners of the earth indicated there. Horns on those four corners, perfect power, stretching out. There is no place, no time, no individual who is beyond the reach of the salvation, the power and the might of our God. And the time and the place for salvation is right now for anyone who will believe. The universe itself cannot contain God, and yet his reach is limited to my permission. 
He can reach in and save the hardest heart if that individual will just lay it down and accept what Jesus has done. We know we cannot hide from the presence of the Almighty. Jonah tried it. It didn't work out too well for him. And David wrote my favorite psalm, Psalm 139, and he asks, where can I go from your presence? Where can I hide from you? If I, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It doesn't matter if I take the wings of the dawn. Anywhere I go, you will be in that place. And then he finishes that section, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. What a glorious thing. That is a comforting bunch of words to me. Because I tell you, as I continue to wander through this wilderness of my life, I need constantly to remember that there is never going to be a time or a place that's going to catch me abandoned by God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's a really, really long time. Eternity is a really long time in both directions. And God is ready to be powerful always, always and ever with his watchful, loving eye on each one of us. I heard Pastor Chuck Smith tell a story once about walking down the beach with his little grandson. And the grandson said, Grandpa, does God see everything I do? And very wisely, Grandpa said, he loves you so much, he cannot take his eyes off you. And that is true of you today. That's really good news, especially for those who have walked through that one and only door and stopped there at the altar of sacrifice and received the blood of the lamb. Believers, those people that we refer to in the church as believers, born again believers, are those individuals who have done exactly that, gone through the one and only door. Jesus said, I am the door. We recognize as believers in Christ that there is nothing I can do, no amount of money I can pay, no talent I possess that's going to qualify me to go beyond that door. But through Jesus Christ, I am infinitely qualified to step through. God's ultimate altar of sacrifice was Jesus' cross. And uh, we have a problem when we consider all those individuals who have not chosen to come this way or think they can get it another way. The Bible calls those people thieves and robbers. And perhaps you've heard some of the arguments, as I have done. Some people will say, well, God's way is too narrow or it's too restricted, too harsh, even too ugly. I don't want to talk about all that death and, and blood on a cross and the most incredible one of all to me is it sounds too easy. That's because they have not the insight that the believer in Christ has. He bankrupted heaven and he suffered and died in an excruciating way. It was not easy, but it's easy for us because all we have to do is say, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. When I am confronted with any of those kinds of arguments, it kind of makes me laugh. I cannot help but think of the book of Job. I love the last four or five chapters in Job. God does some great grandstanding there. And he begins to give out some of his accomplishments on behalf of humanity. And right here in Job chapter 38, this just makes me laugh every time I read it. Verses 12 and 13 of Job 38 God is speaking and he says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? 
and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? I love this. The four corners, picture it, the four corners of the earth as we saw in the altar of sacrifice. It's like a tea towel to God. He could take the corners and shake it anytime he wanted to and the wicked just go flying. But he did not do that. Because of his great love for us, he sent his son, his only begotten beloved son. And the way to eternity in heaven now is wide open through Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation tells us there is a door open in heaven and no man, human, can shut it. God alone can shut that door, and until the day he does that, the way is open for anyone who will believe. And just like with the Hebrews, God saw the affliction of the Hebrews in Egypt. He heard their cry, and he reached out and delivered them through many signs and wonders. And just as he did it for them, he can do it for you today. There's no place where you can go from the presence or the power of the Almighty. He is so complete and perfect in his power and he sees you completely and perfectly too and he more than that he just doesn't keep his eye on you he knows you he perceives you he understands you and he knows exactly what you're thinking feeling going through and what tomorrow is going to hold for each one of you and he's got his hand out and it's just for us to reach out and take it i want to show you something interesting about the altar of sacrifice on the march, when the camp was to move and they were breaking everything down, God gave very specific instructions about covering each piece of furniture. Who could cover it? Who could touch it? Who could even look at it? And then he would do it like I told you, lest you die. He's very serious about handling holy things. But look at this interesting picture regarding the covering of the altar of sacrifice. It's in Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4 is one of those chapters that would be a good idea to become familiar with. It is all the moving instructions. So if it's something that interests you, that's where you're going to find almost every bit of it for the, um, all the furniture. Numbers chapter 4, we'll look at verses 13 and 14. God speaking, giving these instructions. He said, then they, he's speaking of the uh, Levites and the priests who do the work of moving the tabernacle. They shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. Then he goes on to describe all the utensils. What you're going to do is clean the altar, put a purple cloth on it, then take all the fire pans and the shovels and all the tools, lay them on top of that. And then he says... They shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. And the poles were inserted into rings so that the priests could then lift and carry. I love that Pastor McGee tells us that we need to shoulder our own pack. Remember that they carried it on their shoulders through the wilderness and we carry Jesus Christ. Lift him high in your life and carry him with you everywhere you go. But this is what's interesting to me. First, we have a purple cloth, and then we have this 
porpoise skin. Most Bible scholars are, are kind of arguing about what this thing might be. Some kind of a manatee-like creature is a possibility. Whatever it was, it was animal hide, not very attractive, but it would have been waterproof. And that would be a good thing as you're on the march and you're moving through the wilderness. Um, it was symbolic, this animal hide, of durability and provision. And through the Old Testament, in many places, you read that the shoes of the Hebrews were made of this material. And while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, their shoes never wore out. Neither did their clothing. You would never need to buy another new pair of shoes for your teenager as long as you lived. Isn't that amazing? But the durability and the provision of God. But I don't imagine that they were terribly attractive, this animal hide. And if you remember, too, that the desert floor that they walked on was thorny and hard and rocky, to say that those shoes never wore out and their feet never swelled, in fact, is one of the references. That's a remarkable act of provision by God. He knew their need, and their need for shoes was apparent. He knows every need that we have, and our greatest need of all is a Savior. And if he could provide shoes, he will definitely be able to save all who will come to him. But when I mentioned that that cloth of purple was the first one over the top, purple, I don't know if you know this, is symbolic of royalty. A royal color covering that altar of sacrifice. And are you aware that when the Roman soldiers mocked and belittled and tortured Jesus, they wrapped him up in a robe? Do you know what color it was? It was the purple robe, a royal purple robe. That's astounding. John chapter 19, verses 2 and 5 give us that detail. Little did they know as they were mocking him and beating him that all that was deity and royalty and nobility was permitting them to reach their hands out and brutalize him. He was allowing them to do that to him. And every stroke that fell to him belonged on me. If we take a second look then at these coverings, it's easy to imagine that one, the purple would be very beautiful, but the other, ugly, plain, common. When people are confronted with the, Christ, with, with the cross of Christ, I find that they have one of two reactions. And I read these two different reactions described in 1 Corinthians 1.18. You boil it down, and people who are confronted with the cross of Christ will either think that it is foolishness, for the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But... Reaction number two, for those of us who have believed that cross for our salvation, it is to us who are being saved, the very power of God. I also see this in the two thieves who hung on either side of Jesus on their crosses. They both of them began that day hurling abuses at Jesus. But after some time went by, the one man began to look past that ugly, plain exterior. Jesus is no longer wearing that purple robe. He's stripped naked, hanging there on that cross, bloodied and bruised beyond human recognition. The Bible says he was marred more than any man. That means he didn't look human. 
And this one thief began to see past that ugly, plain, common exterior, a carpenter from Nazareth, and he began to see the royalty and the deity of God, the Son of God. And all he could bring himself to say was, I deserve what I'm getting. I'm a sinner, and I'm up here on this cross because I deserve it. But you, you are innocent. And then he made the greatest confession of all. Remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus' response immediately was not, now get down off that cross and go pay a bunch of money to the poor and do these righteous acts. No. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. What a precious thing to look past the plain, the ugly, the grotesque picture that we see here at the altar of sacrifice and there on the cross to see the royalty of the Son of God the only begotten, beloved Son of God. The strength and the power of salvation that the Lord offers is ours for the asking. And some people will say, can it really be that simple? Yes. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's like the thief on the cross. One of these days when you get out of that earth suit and you're standing in glory in the presence of the real tabernacle, you're going to meet this guy. He is probably responsible for, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of salvations for people who are exactly in his position just before they die accepting Jesus and being gloriously saved. And this is it. If you are in this room today and you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior... Let today be the day of your salvation. And all you have to do is recognize this sacrifice that was made for your sin. Sin that you were born with, not sin that you acquired along the way. All of us have, fallen, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then we recognize that the price has already been paid. There's not a thing you can add to it. There's not a thing you can take away from it. It's done. It is finished. And it's finished for you. And then you recognize that the door is wide open and you walk through it. That's how much effort it takes on your part. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that he died for your sin, according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised again, according to the scripture, on the third day. And he did it for you because all of us were headed straight to hell. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ paid every one of those wages. In the moment when he said it is finished, he fulfilled all of the requirements of the entire sacrificial system. And when he rose on the third day and then later ascended into heaven, he fulfilled every prophecy that was ever given about what Messiah would come to do. There is not one thing left except you're accepting his free gift. So today, let today be the day of salvation and be like that thief on the cross and say, today, will you accept me and bring me home? And today, this very day, you can be with Jesus in paradise. This is paradise standing right here because I am in Christ and he is in me. And one day I get to go home and see the Father. Oh, glory, glory, hallelujah. I'm going to pray a little prayer. It's a model of, what it, of the kind of prayer that you might pray. But listen, this is the privacy of your own heart, a conversation that you're going to have with the Heavenly Father.
It doesn't have to be these exact words because God knows your heart. He knows your mind. And if you want to pray with one of us when, it, when we're all done here, we'd love to have you come up and the team will be here ready to pray with you. We want to rejoice with you over the decision you're about to make. So I will just pray this little sample prayer and you can follow along just quietly in the privacy of your own heart. And then we're gonna have Robin come and lead us in a, in a song of praise and worship and you come forward if you'd like. Uh, the church has a little packet that they'd like to give you, a gift. And so we'd love to pray with you, rejoice with you and welcome you to the family of God. So bow your heads with me. Father God, I recognize that I need a savior because I have sinned and I no longer want to live apart from you. Please forgive my sin and save me. I understand that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin with his death on the cross, that he died in my place, that he rose from the dead and now through him, I am completely, eternally forgiven, and I have eternal life. Lord, your word says, believe in Jesus Christ, and I will be saved. So I believe. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the entire tabernacle rests on those sockets of silver, and now so do you. Welcome to the family of God if you prayed any kind of prayer like that. I'm going to close with one prayer for the rest of us. This is just a verse straight out of the Bible that I love. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours, O Lord. This is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come forward if you want to. We'd love to pray with you.